The book of Romans is a very deep book with a strong doctrinal emphasis. In fact, if I were to choose, in my judgment, one of the more difficult books of the Bible, I would say it's the book of Romans. The reason why is because many of the concepts that are found there are rooted in strong doctrinal principles. However, passages that are strong on doctrine can also be rich in practical meaning. Many times we look and we say, well, I want passages that are practical. I want things that are just very simple to grasp. But sometimes the richest of the passages in the practicality find themselves in some of the deepest teachings of God's Word. And Romans 8 and verse 28 is a favorite of many of you. In fact, one good brother last Sunday evening handed me a card and said, I want you to preach on Romans 8 and verse 28. I said, it's already in the queue. Uh, it's one that several of this congregation have requested. And so tonight we're going to study this wonderful passage from God's Word. We're going to look at three things within this passage and its context. We're going to look at, first of all, an explanation of the passage. We're going to look at it in detail. Then number two, we're going to look at some examples that are illustrated by the passage. And then number three, we want to look at some encouragement that you and I should derive from that. Let's begin, first of all, with the explanation. And when you're going to study a passage of Scripture, there are two things that you focus upon. The first one being the context. The verses that preceded and follow it, because there is a reason why that passage appears where it does and suggests the teaching in it. And then you have to focus on the text itself and what is contained therein. And so I want to begin, first of all, with the context. And you can open your Bibles. In fact, I encourage you to do that, even though I'm going to pick out specific verses that I think highlight the context in which it's found. And the first thing is verse 18. And it illustrates the perspective of one who is suffering. And I think primarily the thought here is suffering persecution. Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Look at the present life in which you and I find ourselves. Many times we find ourselves going through persecution, some sort of, if Paul uses here the word tribulation, and he says, but when you put them on a scale and you compare the two of them, they're not even worthy to be compared because what we will receive is so much greater. Then he talks about in verses 24 and 25, our having perseverance or endurance because of our hope of that promise. Paul says, for we are saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. I want you to key on that last phrase there. We eagerly wait for it. We keep in our mind's eye a focus upon what God has promised. And we want it. We want it now but because we are willing to persevere, to endure, we're able to keep it as the hope of our lives. 
If you drop down to verses 26 and 27, he illustrates what I think many of us would recognize in ourselves practically. If I'm going through a difficult time, I am suffering either persecution or some sort of tribulation, some sort of bad thing in my life, the very first thing I want to do is to tell my Heavenly Father what I am enduring. Sometimes it's difficult for a person to be able to do that, to put into words exactly how we feel. And so we read in verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps our in weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. I want you to look carefully at what he says here. We do not know what we ought to pray for as we ought. I think about if I am going through a difficult time, do I pray to God to relieve this burden? Do I pray to God to give me strength to be able to endure the burden? Both of those are wonderful thoughts to say, God help me. But then he talks about the Spirit making intercession which groanings that cannot be uttered. That's not the Spirit's groanings. Those are our groanings. When you and I just simply express our exasperation with life and the Spirit is able to take that and communicate that to the Father. What a tremendous thought as a part of this background. Now if you jump verse 28 for just a moment and look with me at verses 29 and 30. He emphasizes that God has a plan involved. He says in verse 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. You know, the book of Romans deals with predestination or foreordination. And much of the religious world has bought into the teachings of Calvin, which says that man is predestined by his personality to be saved or lost. But if you look carefully what it says here, that he was predestined, foreordained, planned ahead of time, to be conformed to the image of his son. It was God's plan that those people to whom he would offer these blessings would conform their life to his son so that not only would you have Jesus doing what is right, but you'd have many brethren that would follow thereafter who would do the same things, live the life after the pattern of Jesus Christ. So you see, how do I respond to the sufferings? How do I respond to the temptations? I look at Jesus and I see what he did with temptations placed before him in Matthew chapter 4. I see how Jesus faced the challenge of the cross. Hebrews chapter 12, when he says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then he provides a summary. And don't miss verses 31 and 32 because all this sort of encapsulates this and brings it to a conclusion by saying, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What he is focusing on is, if you look at all these things that have been said prior to this, it's to emphasize that God does care for his own, for those who are his. Now, I tried to find a really good way to express this, and then when you read and you study, you find that some people have said it much better than you feel like you could say it. And in a commentary called the Bible Speaks Today series, on pages 246 and 247, the author gave what I thought was a very good observation of five unshakable convictions. He said the first unshakable conviction is we know that from this passage that God is at work. He works all things together. And then we know that God works all things for good, or what God works for good. God doesn't work for evil. And I, I think about passages like James chapter 1. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. We have a good God who does good things. And then we know that God in all things works good. Not just in some things. But in every facet, every area of life, God is working things together for the good. Number four, we know that it is for those who love God that God works the good. Those people to whom God has said, you do what is right, you love me, you keep my commandments, and I will work the good for you. And then number five is, we know that those who love God are the ones who are called according to his purpose. Now, let me step back for just a moment and focus in on Romans 8, verse 28. For we know, we know, there are a couple of words that are found in the New Testament for the word know. One of them, the one that is found here, is one that describes how someone understands something with his mind's eye, that is, he understands things. It's, it's knowledge by observation, if you will. For instance, I learned a long time ago that if there's a fire and you put your hand in it, it'll burn you. Someone says, are you sure about that? Yeah, I know if I put my hand in the fire, I've learned that by observation. I've seen other people do it. I've done it myself. And there's some experience there that now I know something and I can... Um, can grasp that idea. There's other things that we can know by observation. Well, here's what we do. We know that all things work together for the good. And that phrase is important because the good does not mean that all things are good. Not everything is good in this world. There's a lot of wickedness. There's a lot of evil in it. But all things can work together for the good. 
and I will emphasize it's the good, not just good. For instance, cancer is not good, but cancer can work for the good. Suffering is not good, but it can work for the good. Let me illustrate it to you. James chapter 1, verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the trying of your faith or the testing of your faith works, produces patience. Well, let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. When I fall into, not that I am somehow seeking it out, but I fall into a various trial, I can know that something can come good out of that if I will let it. In Romans, and I think this is significant in the context in which we're studying, in chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, he says that not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. It produces endurance. And perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. What you step back and look and see is is that there can be good come out of bad. I can give you a personal illustration in my family. My mother's brother, my uncle, was a man who became a Christian and for many years was dedicated to the Lord's church. He became very successful in his occupation. One morning while he was going to work, he, because of success he quit going to church much. Because of going to work one morning where there was ice on the road, his truck flipped upside down on a bridge, broke his back, spent several weeks, I guess months, in a hospital in Birmingham, came out never to walk again. During the period of time in which he was suffering, a number of Christians reminded him that they loved him and they were concerned about his future and wanted to help him. He came back, was restored to the Lord's church, was faithful to the day he died. One of the greatest blessings he said that he had in his life was to see his son preach a gospel sermon. Now, was that accident good? No, the accident's not good, but it worked good because of the way he responded to it. The good does not mean that things will always turn out right physically either. I think sometimes we may have left the impression reading this verse that if a person loves God and the person wants to do what is right, that physically everything's going to work out fine in this life. I want you to look at the context again with me. Look with me at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Now for just a moment before we go to verse 38, let me ask you which one of those things sounds appealing physically? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword. I don't think any of those sound good to me. Doesn't sound pleasant. But that's not what the good he's discussing. Look at verses 38 and 39. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, 
angels or principalities or powers or things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, we may endure suffering, but the good can come out of those things because we're not looking at the present good. You remember verse 18? But we're looking at the future good. Now there's some key elements to this verse. And that is there's only a certain group of people to whom these things work together for good. He tells us it is those who love God. If I love God and I face the difficulties in life, I will make the right choices. They are the ones who are the called. And we're going to have to discuss the called a little bit later. They are the ones who have correctly responded to God's call. If you go to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. There's a lifestyle that God calls us to live. It's called to be lit, to in, be in conformity with His Son. In Revelation 17 and verse 14, these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. You see, the people he is talking about here are people who love God. They've answered the call. They've responded correctly. The purpose of God is for one to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, if that is a teaching found in principle in God's word, would you not expect to see it carried out in the lives of individual people? And I think obviously so. Let me give you an illustration or two of how this has been done. Joseph. Now, I'm going to give you the record of Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, and then we'll think about it for just a moment. He said, and the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and over all of his house. You know how Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. That was tough. But there was something good to come out of that. He ended up in Potiphar's house. But Potiphar's wife falsely accused him. But there was something good to come out of that. He went to prison. Prison wasn't good. But he came in contact with the butler and the baker. And then because of that he was able to appear before Pharaoh to interpret dreams. And then once he appeared before Pharaoh he was able to be promoted to be over all Egypt. Only under the Pharaoh himself. And save many people alive. Did Joseph do a lot of suffering? Obviously so. But God was able to work things together for the good. Because Joseph was in the right place doing what God wanted done. Another illustration is found in the book of Esther. And we all know about the hatred of Haman and many people 
in the king's court wanting to bring about the end of the Jewish people. Mordecai, Esther's uncle, made a statement to her in chapter 4, verse 14. And he said, For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. We often quote the last phrase of that, or last sentence of that verse. But I'd suggest to you there is the providence of God in the earlier part of that verse as well. You see, Mordecai is saying is, if you remain completely silent, you don't do your job, Esther. If you say, I, I quit, will God still work the good among his people? He surely will. Because he says, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. God will work his will the question is whether you want to be among those who love God and who are going to be a part of His plan. Third illustration, the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk was completely depressed because of the condition of God's people. He looked and he just couldn't believe that God was allowing these people to continue. And God's answer to Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 5 is, Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For I am, indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and a hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that is not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. God says, Habakkuk, I am raising up a people to teach my people a lesson. I am trying to do something that is going to preserve the nation. And the Babylonian captivity did that. It drove idolatry out of the Jewish people. That was good give you one more illustration. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 44, verse 28, looking forward to the punishment that the children of Israel are going to receive, God says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. That's prophetic. God had a plan before Cyrus ever arose to be the king of the Medes and the Persians. That he was going to be the one who would declare the children of Israel could go home. Not only can they go home, they can build the temple. You see, God is involved in the affairs of men. And God can and does work the good for those who are his, for those who are the called according to his purpose. God's will will be done. His will will be done. Now, I think this passage offers encouragement that nothing can separate one from the love of God. But I think it says even a whole lot more. I want you to focus for just a, ma a minute 
on the issue of questioning God's plans. I think behind all of this, many of us find ourselves saying, why am I where I am? Why am I facing the difficulties, the problems, the, the troubles that are in my life? And why did God do it this way? And if you really want to study the book of Job is the book. I'd like to offer a couple of passages that tie this together. One is found in Isaiah 45. He says, Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and its maker, Ask of me things concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. My hands stretched out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. I raised him up in righteousness. I will direct all of his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. There's a question comes up. God, why are you doing this? And he says, let the potsherds strive with the potsherds. You want to strive with somebody. You want to ask somebody why you're doing it. You talk to another man. You don't talk to God that way. We're not in a position to question how God brings about his will. And that's the reason why Romans chapter 9, 20 says... But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed to say who him, him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Why did you put me in this situation? Why am I where I am? It's not my place to question. A second thing, if God works all things together for the good, I ought to be seeking what good God has, His plan, and try to work toward it. There's a number of passages which talk about suffering people and talk about their response to the world in which they find themselves. Just like Joseph. Joseph found himself in Potiphar's house. Joseph was falsely accused. He could have given in to her advances, or he could have chosen to do what was right. He said, I'm going to do what's right even if I have to suffer for it. Listen to 1 Peter 2.15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Chapter 2, verse 20. For what credit is it if you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Chapter 3, verse 17 and 419. For it is better if the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Verse 19. Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. And then I like the way Paul put it to the Philippians in chapter 2, verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Paul's writing this to the church. God works in you. 
Do you realize there's a song we sing, God has no hands but our hands? God has no feet but our feet? I think that might be a little bit too limiting, but I do think that it illustrates that God uses us to bring about His good just like He used those people in the illustrations. Now let's go back to the calling. God calls men by the gospel. It's not as if somehow there is a, a magical person over here who is chosen at random or arbitrarily. But Paul would write, To which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. How far was the gospel to go? Mark chapter 16, verses 15 16, To every creature and to all the world, to all nations. Luke chapter 24. However, men must call back on God in order to be saved. God calls us, but do I answer that call? Romans 10.13 says, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, what does that mean? How, do I just simply say, God saved me? Acts 22, verse 16, And now while you're waiting, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. That's the way you do it. And then we need to make sure that our calling and election is sure. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even the more diligent to make your call and election sure. I've got to be looking at my life and make sure that my life is being conformed to the image of His Son. What a tremendous passage. Romans 8 and verse 28 is. Perhaps you're here tonight. You're not a Christian. We want to urge you to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel call comes to you. It's your choice now to answer it by being baptized for the remission of your sins. And for those who are Christians walking in the world, living your own life rather than living the life God intended for you to live, you can be forgiven of your sin if you'll come back and confess that and repent of it. Would you come now as we stand and sing?